Just hearing the opening notes of this song takes you to an unmistakably Christmassy place. It's by far the best-known Christmas song in the world, and probably among the most recognizable songs in any genre. Which makes perfect sense when you consider that it's been recorded more times than any other song in history. It's a study in minimalism. With a sparse melody and moderate tempo, it has a tranquil, open feel, like a lullaby. Perfect listening for any time during the season, whether or not all is calm or bright. And if you're like most people, you've never known a Christmas season where Silent Night wasn't an essential part of the soundscape. And that fact alone is remarkable. When you consider the song's humble beginnings, its nearly accidental debut, and its unlikely journey throughout Europe and America. That's a story populated by a grave robber, singing glove makers, mice with the munchies, and a pair of friends who wouldn't let a little thing like a broken church organ make for a silent night. Except that they sort of did. I'm Brian Earle. This is Christmas Past. In 1818, on Christmas Eve, in a tiny village called Oberndorf in Austria, at a church with a Christmassy name of St. Nicholas Church, Silent Night was performed for the first time. But that's not really where our story begins. Where the story truly starts is somewhat in the eye of the beholder. Perhaps it started at the end of the Napoleonic Wars just a few years earlier. People were recovering from the violence and grateful for peace. Maybe that's what inspired the young priest named Joseph Moore to write a poem titled Silent Night, Holy Night. Or we could start with Moore's visit to one of the families in his flock, where seeing a sickly baby inspired him to write the poem. Or was it that he was inspired on a walk from his grandfather's home to church years before? Or maybe it was those hungry church mice that chewed up the church organ bellows, forcing a change of plans for the Christmas Eve service's musical accompaniment. These are all common ways that the story has been told and retold over the years. But the problem is, they're either half true at best or just plain false. Yes, a romanticized version is a mouse got in and chewed up the bellows and so forth of the organ, but that's, that, from what we know, is not true. The organ was broken down. That's Wayne Bronner. He's the president and CEO of Bronner's Christmas Wonderland in Frankenmuth, Michigan. And I'm not sure what mischievous mice are supposed to add to the story, but that certainly is one of the several little pieces of legend that has been added over the centuries. So here's what we do know. Joseph Moore was a priest in his early 20s when he was assigned to the St. Nicholas Church in the town of Oberndorf in 1817. The year before, Moore had written a poem titled Silent Night, Holy Night. He wrote lots of poems and song lyrics, and as far as anyone can tell, he had no plans of turning it into a song or having it published. Apparently, he tucked the poem away in his collection and didn't pay any special attention to it for two years. Fast forward to 1818, as Christmas is approaching, and Moore is getting ready for the Christmas Eve service, including the music part. As Moore was making last-minute preparations and double-checking that everything was in order, he noticed that the church organ wouldn't play. That much is definitely true, but it was flooding from the nearby river that damaged the organ, the same flooding that would soon force the church to close altogether. There would be no organ music that Christmas. So Moore did some quick thinking. How about a song that didn't need an organ? He dug up his poem and went to a neighboring village to visit his friend Franz Gruber, a teacher and musician. He asked him how quickly he could set the poem to music. 
The most famous Christmas song in the world was a result of a mishap, some resourceful thinking, and basically a rush job on some music writing. And they sung it that first night uh, accompanied by a guitar, which was relatively unusual because all the church music to that point had been on an organ. That part, too, was remarkable. Not only was it unusual to play church music on a guitar, it was actually kind of inappropriate. In that time and place, a guitar was an instrument you'd see a musician playing in a pub. Now, the story could have ended here. And in fact, it really should have. A last-minute fire drill for a service at a small church in a small town? There's no reason the song shouldn't have been instantly forgotten. But it spread to the neighboring towns and then farther still, and now here we are today. Now, this is where some more legends and half-truths come into the story. Some say that the church organ repairman heard the song when he came to fix the organ, and he helped to spread it as he went from town to town. But something we do know for sure is that traveling folk singer groups were common in the 19th century, and many of these groups learned the song and repeated it in their travels. And a group of singers adapted the song Strasser and Reiner, and they took the song throughout Europe. The Stasser family was a group of singing glove makers, and I'm only mentioning that because it just sounds so awesome. And they performed the song in front of a large audience in 1832, which was a big boost for its popularity. And then eventually the Reiner group brought it to New York City, and it's grown since that time to become the world's favorite Christmas hymn. That was in 1839. Within a few decades, the song had been translated into more than 20 languages. 1859 was the year that the English translation we all know appeared. Somewhere along the line, the title was shortened from Silent Night, Holy Night to simply Silent Night. Now, there's one part of the story that sounds like it could be just another legend or a half-truth, but I assure you, it is 100% true. In 1912, some 64 years after Moore's death, a local sculptor wanted to create a memorial of Moore and Gruber. The only problem was, nobody knew what Moore looked like. He had never had a portrait done during his lifetime. So the sculptor had Moore's body exhumed and removed his skull from the grave to use as an artist's model for the statue. When a memorial chapel was erected at the site where the St. Nicholas Church once stood, the skull was embedded in the wall of the chapel, and it's still there today. You can visit it just as tens of thousands of people do each year. Or you could go to Frankenmuth, Michigan, where Wayne Bronner's family has constructed a scale replica. So back in 1976, my father was over and he saw the Salonite Chapel in Oberndorf, Austria. And he got permission from the Oberndorf government to build a replica of the Salonite Chapel. And we put that in that place in 1992. Many families visit the Bronner's replica chapel as a yearly tradition, which is what Christmas is all about a way to repeat the things that bring us joy and warm memories and maintain a connection to the past, including the people who have come and gone. Practicing Christmas traditions is a way to let loved ones live on by continuing to make their wishes and intentions real. That's something Arianne in Tennessee knows about as she shares in this Christmas memory. Most of my holiday memories are filled with a lot of joy, bliss, magic, and just pure happiness. I literally was raised to be a major lover of Christmas. My maternal grandmother made a huge deal of the holidays. Even when my mom and her siblings were younger, it was a time of communing together, you know, families, friends, singing joyous songs, feeding their tummies until everyone passed out, together in the living room, talking, reminiscing, and just laughing until their hearts were content. My mother and father 
raised my sister and I on that exact same sentiment. So Christmas has always had a special place in my heart. Things did slightly change when my mother passed away about five years ago. I knew in my heart that I had to continue the Christmas traditions and feelings of holiday cheer even after she passed, but for a while, it was really hard coming to the realization that she was no longer part of that joy. The memories I had with her during the holidays will forever just be memories now, and my family and I will never be able to create new ones with her. But one day I decided to continue her legacy by being everything that she taught me to be as a woman and by continuing our Christmas traditions in the best way possible. So every Christmas season, we continue our traditions, opening one gift on Christmas Eve morning, all of the usual holiday dinner treats and entrees, watching Home Alone, Fred Claus, and the Polar Express in that order. And we've even added a tradition now by going to Disney World every December in her honor. It's important to remember those who are grieving during the holiday season and to reminisce on Christmas past with loved ones. Although Christmas may be tough without the ones you love, know that they're always with you and it's important to continue living their legacy. Merry Christmas to all and may the joy continue throughout your days. What Christmas traditions are you looking forward to practicing this year? I'd love to hear about it, and I'd love to share it with the rest of the Christmas Past family. If you'd like to share a Christmas memory on the show, all you have to do is record a voice memo into your phone and send it to christmaspastpodcast at gmail.com. Keep it to about a minute, keep it clean and family-friendly, and be sure to say your name and where you're from. Christmas Past is produced in sunny San Mateo, California by yours truly, Brian Earle. I'd like to thank Wayne Bronner and Ariane in Tennessee. As always, thank you for listening. You can join the conversation by searching for Christmas Past on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and you'll find episode show notes along with quizzes, videos, articles, and much, much more over at christmaspast.media.